0: My name is Van Calhoun, and I have the great pleasure to introduce to you our speaker for this morning. Jennifer Mayu has been a part of this community, an integral part, and has come to be a very beloved part, for, she told me this morning, almost three years. Well now, at Grace Point, three years is quite a long time, so I think that um, in light of that, uh, I think I'm going to call her homegrown. That way we can take some credit for who she is to us. Jennifer grew up in a small town in southern Louisiana. And she went to school, as I heard her say earlier, at LSU. And she earned a bachelor's degree there in electrical engineering. I'm going to keep that in mind. I have this light that keeps flickering, Jennifer. (laughs) Um, She asked that perhaps, since there are so many Alabama fans here, that you might not hold that LSU designation against her in any kind of a way. But following that, she then uh, went to uh, school and earned a master's degree in uh, theology. And this was at the Dallas Theological Seminary. After that, she then moved to Kansas, where she pastored a non-denominational church for five years. And then Having a desire to be in church planting, she moved then to Middle Tennessee and uh, planted a church in Murfreesboro for where she stayed for five years. Now, personally, what I know about Jennifer is that she's incredibly kind and she has a brilliant mind. I discovered that is we met together in what is now called Nathan. That's how quick my I lost at our, it. Our reconstruct, yes, <laughs> reconstruct. Formerly known as Midrash, where as she would share, uh, I was drawn in by her her kind intellect. I think that uh, then more of you probably have come to know her through her thoughtful and engaging posts that you see from time to time on the Grace Facebook page. So having said that, uh, would you welcome Jennifer Mayo to <laughs> for the first time?
1: Okay, am I on? Yes. Okay. Awesome, guys. I'm so absolutely uh, delighted to be here with y'all uh, this morning. Um, I I had a uh, had a one of my favorite professors in seminary. He was an older gentleman. At probably about 70 at the time that, uh, that I was in seminary. And uh, he was a great, great uh, preacher, one of the best on campus. And um, he talked about how he would, he said, you know, I've been preaching since I was 17 years old, and now I'm 70. And every time I stood up to preach, I, I got so nervous. And he said, well, what do you do uh, to combat that? And he said, here's what I do. I stand out in the lobby before they call my name, and I physically shake myself back and forth, and that gets all my nerves out. So I didn't shake myself this morning or anything like that, but hopefully we're okay. But uh, I'm just delighted to be with y'all this morning and um, have a time where we get to know each other a little bit better. And I want to share with you, I don't have so much a sermon for you this morning, but I want to share, oh, I share with you my journey uh, and my story. And I'm so excited about sharing my journey and my story with you. Not so much because it's my journey and my story, but because I honestly believe that there is immense and incredible power in our collective stories as a community and our shared journey together. And whenever we share our stories and our journeys with each other, we are on holy ground. We are in a place of sacred space, for our stories and our journeys have the power to change and transform both us as we speak them and those who hear them. A Native American proverb says, tell me facts and I will learn. Tell me truth and I will believe. But tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. I love that. We're people of story, aren't we? We grow up as little kids hearing stories from our parents and they stick with us and we in turn tell those same stories to our kids who tell them to their kids and they're just sort of passed down for generations. And my particular story that I want to share with you this morning is a journey. It's a journey that I never, ever, ever thought I would take in my wildest dreams, but a journey that I cannot imagine not taking today. It's a story and a journey of intense pain, a story of denial, a story of confusion, of self-discovery, of rejection, and ultimately finding a sense of healing and peace and authenticity. You see, I haven't always been the person you see standing before you this morning here. Can we put up that photo? Wowza. Not too many years ago that was me on the left. And I, I was actually doing what I'm doing right now, preaching preaching a sermon in Murfreesboro, the Boys and Girls Club, uh where we had our church. And uh oh my word, and um and <laughs> wowza uh, as they say. So that's me today. Um so a lot of changes. And uh, this morning I want to share just a little bit of uh, how I transitioned, and more importantly, why in the world would a person do this? Why would I go from the guy on the right to the gal, or the gal on the left, to the gal on the right? And I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, how my story and my own particular journey may apply to all of us here in this church today. And I just want to take an unscientific poll this morning, very unscientific poll. How many of you that have been going here for a while to Grace Point, this was your first real contact with a, a person a, that you knew was transgender. It was the first place you really interacted with a person seriously. Just raise your hand. Put up your hand. So yeah. So so quite a few of you. So uh, hopefully this will be an educational experience. And as I, as I meet people out in public, I, I realize that I'm often the first trans person that they've ever met. And so I try to keep that in mind and, and give them a little grace and a little slack and, you know, and answer as many questions as I can. But there's another reason I'm excited about sharing my journey, and it's this one. Could you put this quote up? I absolutely love this quote because I found this to be true in my own life that every time I tell my story and share my journey I lose a little bit of the pain. I lose a little bit of the hurt. A little bit of the trauma. Just the tiniest bit of the acid. So this morning I want to be brutally open and honest with you as much as I possibly can. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about what this is like this morning. I'm going to tell it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I I hope you're okay with that. And um, I feel comfortable with doing that here because so many of you are like my family, really closer than my blood and biological family. So, here we go. How in the world and why did I transition? Okay, so we got all that done. Um, I grew up, as Van said, in South Louisiana, right outside of New Orleans, which was then a little town called Mandeville. It's right at the end of the longest bridge in the world, the New Orleans Causeway, 25 uh, mile long bridge, and now it's become like a suburb, sort of like Franklin. And um, I say that to say that if I'm ever in your meal group, you want me in your meal group because I bring gumbo, jambalaya, red beans, and rice. Amen, Shelley? We got We got all that going. So I remember growing up as a kid in South Louisiana in the 70s. I'm giving away my age here. And I I would wear my mom and my sister's clothes when they weren't home. And I would wait for them to leave the house if they were going somewhere to the grocery store, shopping or, or whatever. I would go in their closets and take out their clothes and I would put them on. I would put on their pretty things and go stand in front of the mirror and just look at myself. And I was thought that I looked beautiful like they did, and so I would just stand there and look. And although I loved the way I felt when I wore my mom and my sister's clothes, I was totally confused about that. And I had this intense sense of internal shame and guilt, like I was doing something inherently wrong and bad. It was a very confusing experience for a kid at that time. There were really not any resources like we have today. Um, Never heard of the word transgender, not part of our collective vocabulary at the time. Never heard of a gender therapist. No, even no internet at that time or Google where I could get on and, you know, research what, I was feeling as a child. So there was absolutely nothing. So I dare, dare, dare not tell a soul. And I hoped that my mom and my sister, or worse yet, my father, would never, ever, ever find out that I was wearing my mom and my sister's clothes in secret. So I kept it quiet and i did this with an intense sense of guilt and silent secrecy and shame and then as i grew up i hit puberty wow and things got worse way 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 worse i became even more confused because I had this thing called testosterone running through my body. And what I didn't know at the time was that being a transgender person, my brain was wired to run on the opposite hormone, wired to run on estrogen. And so I knew that I liked the way little girls looked, but yet I wanted to look like them. I wanted to hang out with them and wear their pretty things and talk with them and stuff and be a part of their groups. And I was just totally in a state of confusion. Again, no resources like we have today whatsoever. Certainly no churches like this one. So just so we're on the same page, I want to define a few things for you. Uh, the technical and medical and scientific term for this is called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is defined as an incongruence in a person's biological sex and uh, the sex they perceive themselves, the gender they perceive themselves to be in their minds. And over the last few years, we have had, even in the last three or four years, just an incredible amount of exploding amount of scientific, medical, and psychological research done on, uh, in transgender health and the subject of gender dysphoria. Did you know we currently have, with CTs and MRIs and everything, images of our brain, the brains of transgender people that show that uh, there are structural differences in the part of the brain that determine gender identity, that, that our uh, brains structurally are more like our perceived gender than our birth gender. We have pictures of this on MRIs and CTs and brain scans. But in the 70s when I was growing up, you know, we knew none of this. This was not a thing. So, what did I do with this, uh, this sense of incongruence, this, this dysphoria that I experienced? Beginning in my teenage years, I began really a lifelong struggle with unhealthy, very unhealthy self-medication. I would I, I would va- primarily with food and alcohol. And Uh, By the time I graduated LSU, uh, you move to Louisiana, you gain at least 10 pounds to begin with. But um, I was basically morbidly obese. I, I was eating myself into a grave and I was drinking to the point of blacking out at least three nights a week. I was so, so unhealthy just trying to come to terms with who I was internally and still I was in hiding and I dare not tell a soul and there, was no, there were no support groups, no churches. You know, I, I, This was not part of my upbringing. So I hid in silence and shame and medicated myself in very unhealthy ways and I was a very sick human being at that time. So fast forward a few years, um, I had a fairly normal, what you might call boring, mundane, average adulthood. I fell in love, got married, um, adopted a child from Guatemala, uh, eventually left uh, my career in engineering to follow a call into the ministry and enrolled in uh, the super conservative Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you think Nashville, Tennessee is conservative, if you think we are the heart of the Bible Belt, you need to go to Texas. You need to go to Dallas, Texas. It will make you thank God for Nashville. But, uh, (laughs) you know, big hair, cowboy boots, and big, 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 big churches. So I enroll at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, still struggling with this incongruence, this dysphoria in secret, still haven't told a soul at this point. At this point in my life, not wearing my mom and my uh, sister's clothes in secret, but now wearing my wife's clothes in secret still self-medicating in unhealthy ways with food and booze. And I had to even start drinking in secret because when I went to seminary, I had to sign a document that said I wouldn't drink any alcohol. So they, I, I had to drink on the side and while well, no one was looking. So that's what I did. And a very interesting thing happened to me when I was in seminary I started having these intense, acute panic attacks. And here's how they would happen. I would be going to class or going to work and just driving down the road, driving down the interstate in Dallas, Texas. And suddenly this sense of like doom would literally come over me. And my heart would just start pounding uncontrollably. And I would get like these chest pains and and heavy breathing, hyperventilating. And I would pull over on the side of the road and think, oh, my God, am I dying? Do I need to call 911? Am I going crazy? And I I would sit there for like 10 minutes and they would eventually pass and... So the doctors ran all these tests on me to to see, uh, see if I had heart problems, gave me a stress test, gave me a nuclear stress test where they inject the dye in you and all of this kind of stuff. And they said, nope, nothing wrong with your heart. You're physically fine. So... I didn't connect it, the panic attacks at that time, with my dysphoria. I just thought it was the stress of seminary. I thought it was the stress of learning ancient languages and and working two jobs to, to make ends meet and all that stuff. And so I eventually graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary and pastor a church in Kansas, plant a church here in Tennessee, And over the years, the dysphoria would wax and wane. To be sure, it wasn't like it was 100% super off the charts, 24-7 all the time. If that was it, I would have been dead by now for sure. Sometimes it was so intense that I could hardly breathe. And there are other times that it was okay, I could maybe manage it, and thought that it was getting better. But it was always, always, always there, still on the back burner, still undealt with, still hiding in secrecy, silence, and with an incredible sense of shame and guilt. So, at the ripe age of 51 years old, I was finally at a place where I'd had enough hiding, where I was ready to face this internal struggle within and face this thing that I had hid from in secret all of my life. So I remember how it went down. I came out to my wife after all these years And I remember we were grilling out one night in the backyard and um, I told her, I said, honey, I've got some things I need to tell you. And she said, okay. And I said, there's some things about me that I've hidden from you and everyone all of my life. And it may hurt you very much what you're about to hear. And of course, you tell someone something like that, oh, this look of dread comes over her face, and I said, don't worry, I haven't had an affair or anything, but in your mind, this could be potentially worse, what I'm about to tell you. So I unburdened my soul that night with her, and I told her everything about the hiding, about wearing my mom's clothes and my sister's clothes and about wearing her clothes. And she said, oh, that explains why my shirts may have been stretched out a little bit and stuff. Now it's all making sense. But she was so sweet and so loving and um, told me, gave me the best advice uh, I've ever received. She said, if you're going to deal with this, and and she didn't know a lot about this either at the time, if you're going to deal with this in a serious way, you need to see a therapist. You need to see a counselor. And I said, okay, I agreed." And at this time, I had absolutely zero contacts in the LGBT community, none. I didn't have any friends. I didn't go to this church. At the time, I had no one to talk to. So what do I do? I consult Google. So I Google, here's what I did, y'all. I Google Nashville gender therapist in the search engine, and that's a pretty specialized field, and it pulls up a few names. And uh, so I searched, and there's one that said she could help reconcile your gender or sexuality with your faith. And I said, oh, well, that sounds good. That's right up my alley. So I picked her, and her name's Leah Newman. Some of you may know Leah. She's a, a fabulous therapist here in town over in East Nashville. So I started seeing her. And for the first year of therapy, a pretty intensive therapy, We just talked and Leah began educating me about this thing. That no, I wasn't crazy. No, this was actually a thing. And began introducing me to other people in our community who were like me. And it was an awesome experience, very healing experience. And after about a year of therapy with Leah and uh, getting grounded and feeling better about myself, I told her, I said, I want to go to a doctor and I want to try hormones. And I said, I don't know what will happen, uh, but I want to try and see if they alleviate this dysphoria that I feel. And if not, I can say I've tried, no harm, no foul, I quit. So Leah sends me to a doctor, writes me a referral, and I get a prescription for estrogen. Estrogen. And so I come home and I don't like taking medicine. I'm terrified to take it. So I had this like internal dilemma. I don't want to take this little blue pill that will change my life forever. And oh boy, did it. Um, But I had this dilemma. And that dilemma led to the single lowest night of my life. And I was so unhealthy and so dysphoric at this time. And what I would often do during these times, and it's awful to think about, it's like a scary movie, but unfortunately it was real. I would take red lipstick, a tube of red lipstick, and I would write across my chest and down my arms and on my stomach words like freak. I told you I was gonna tell it all. Words like pervert, words like ugly, animal, clown, reprobate, sinner. And I would write all of those words on me and I would go like when I was a little kid, stand in front of a mirror and look at myself And I would look at myself and literally cry and I would think, what a disgusting human being you are. Look at yourself. And I remember one night after I had written those things on my body, I was suicidal. And I was like, oh my God, I I can't keep, This up. I I can't keep going on like this, and I had no idea what to do. And so I wrote those things, and somehow I fell asleep that night. And I woke up the next morning, uh, and there was a Facebook message on my phone from Paula Williams. Some of you may know Paula, she's a uh, transgender pastor and church planter in Colorado. And the message was short, but it was this. And she said, Jennifer, I was on a flight yesterday from uh, Denver to Charlotte. And I had this just literal compulsion come over me to pray for you. So I don't know what's going on with you or what you're struggling with right now. But I just want you to know that I prayed for you all the way from Denver to Charlotte. And I read those words from Paula and I thought, wow. Wow wow, maybe God is in this whole mess after all. And so I decided to go ahead and try hormones and take the estrogen. And within three weeks of taking estrogen, here's what happened to me. It was literally like this dark Cloud lifted off of my shoulders it was amazing all the depression all the anxiety all of the panic attacks and everything that I had struggled with repeatedly throughout my life was gone and there was this amazing sense of congruency that came over me indescribable And I know I may not totally look congruent or sound congruent, but this deal with my mind, it war with my body and this internal struggle, just sort of went away when I started taking female hormones. And so I've been on estrogen for about two and a half years now. And I don't know how many panic attacks I had before, probably hundreds, but I have not had a single panic attack in two and a half years since I've been on estrogen. Not one. It's been totally amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So I had this huge shift in my mental health and mental well-being. And The greatest changes that happen to a trans person when they go on hormones, and yes, they're physical changes, they're things that happen to our bodies, but the greatest changes occur in the mind. Powerful, powerful drugs for the better, and in our hearts, and in our spirits. And so when I started taking estrogen, my initial plan wasn't to transition, I thought, hey, I found the greatest antidepressant known to man. You know, I'm just going to sort of take this and, uh, you know, feel good. And I can dress like a girl on the side and keep my life together and keep my family together. And the only problem with that, I noticed several things. Um, The longer I was on estrogen first, the better and better I felt. Secondly, the less and less like a man I felt, and thirdly, the harder and harder and harder it got to live with a foot in two worlds and to go back and forth, back and forth, depending on the situation. And it was just sort of like this helter-skelter thing. And I started feeling better, feeling great. So I decided to come out to my pastor of the church I wasn't pastoring at the time, was attending a church in Murfreesboro. Um, And so since I was feeling better about myself, I decided to tell him, that didn't go so well. Let me just say that. And so I wrote a really sweet, what I thought was a really nice letter and met with him. And during that meeting, here's what I was told. I was compared to Judas Iscariot who betrayed Christ and told it had been, would have been better had I not been born. That's what I was told. Not a good thing to tell someone who's in a demographic with a 41% chance of killing themselves. Not a good thing. I was told that I simply had a sickness related to the fall. We've all heard this, right? Many of us that I just had to struggle against, to fight against, and the church, quite nice of them, was here to help me fight and struggle. I was also told in that meeting that if I had any surgeries or anything, that I would be mutilating myself, his exact words, destroying the temple of God and handing my body over to Satan. And I would lose everything. And that part turned out to be true. And so I naturally sort of exited that place fairly (laughs) quickly and found my way through a good friend here to Grace Point. And I remember my first Sunday here at Grace Point at our old campus on Franklin Road. I was absolutely terrified uh, to come to a church like this, but I came... And I remember the first Sunday there. I remember sitting down and people were so sweet and kind and nice to me. And I remember singing the song, No longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. No longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And as we sang those words to that song, I just broke down in a heap of tears. And I literally felt like just a physical, literal physical sensation, y'all, of chains and shackles physically falling off of my body. It was that real and that intense. And I also heard that just uh, in my own spirit, just the voice of the divine speak to me. Said, Jennifer, do you remember all of those things that you wrote on your arms not long ago? Do you remember when you took that red lipstick and wrote pervert, freak, abomination, sinner, ugly animal? Yes, Lord, I remember. Guess what? You're none of those. That has been a lie from the pit of hell itself. You are what this song says. You are a beloved child of God. And so, as we sang those songs, I didn't even have to hear a sermon. Do you know most people, and I'm going to get myself sidetracked here, most people make up their mind whether to come to a church back or not before the preaching starts. It takes about, they as people who study this, uh, about seven minutes, seven to ten minutes before they des- uh, decide whether to come back. And... Um, I knew I was home. So I want to encourage us here this morning as a body, as a church. I know that we have been through a lot of upheaval and transition. And if you've been in church for long, that's normal. I've been in church all my life and that's par for the course. Or maybe you're new here. You've just been coming in a few weeks since we've been in this freaking absolutely gorgeous facility. But... I want to tell you, from experience, you are in a good place. You're in a good place. Not a perfect place. Not a place with no problems. But you're in a good place. A healing place. A place that exists for people like me and for many of us in this room that the church discards and throws back. So while here at Grace Point, I began, like most of us, to deconstruct and reexamine many of the toxic things that I used to believe and teach other people, and I won't go into all that this morning. But also during this time, I began to notice my wife's attitude begin to change. She liked the mental shift that she saw, but I was becoming someone who she couldn't be with, and we were just sort of growing in opposite directions. Also during this time, my son, who has a form of autism called Asperger's, doesn't deal with change well at all, much less something of this magnitude. Tried to harm me and threaten me and beat me up. So my 25-year marriage has come to an end. Uh, My son will not speak to me, return my text or anything like that. I had very little communication with my parents for about a year, but we've had a great reunion that I wrote about on Facebook. And the only family that I've ever known has moved 600 miles away to Texas. So I walk with a limp and I probably will for the rest of my life. And I'm still processing much of this, and I'll probably still be doing that till I breathe my last. In some days I look in the mirror and I see this incredible person of authenticity and the struggle has been worth it, but there are other days, almost just as many, I look at myself and think, what in the hell have you done? The cost, I'm not going to lie, folks, the cost is immense. The loss immeasurable, and even in authenticity and in growth, there is intense sadness and grief. And as I reflect on losing everything, honestly, that is the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. For like the psalmist in Psalm 119, I can say here before you this morning, with all sincerity, it is a good thing that I was afflicted. Because I'm a different person now. I'm much more compassionate, much more whole, much more empathetic. But sometimes that's not even enough. And my real healing has come from reflecting on Jesus' words of initiation of the supper we're about to share in a few minutes. On a night of the most intense soul agony that the world has ever seen, that ended in literally sweating drops of blood. Jesus took bread and lifted up and made a statement that has divided the church for 2,000 years and said, this is my body, broken for you. And as we've seen so beautifully as Stan has taught over the past few months, all good theology expands. It never remains static or certainly doesn't contract. The body that he was talking about being broken was more than his own. That the broken body of Christ is every the sum total of every hurting, bleeding, wounded, and hopeless person to ever, ever walk the face of the earth. That is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a caravan of literal human hopelessness in despair, making its way north. The body of Christ is the gay or trans kid ready to give up. The body of Christ is the prisoner, lonely in the cell. The body of Christ is the single mom working three jobs, wondering how am I going to pay for it all? You want to see the body of Christ? Don't look up. Look around. Look next to you. And so... The only comfort that I really derive from this pain is that maybe, maybe, maybe in some small and insignificant way that the wounds on my body and our bodies together that we bear will somehow be used by God to heal other people, to help others. You see, that's the only way this trauma, this pain computes or makes any sense to me at all. So I don't hide my wounds anymore. And that's a good thing. I really can't because I've lost all the means that we normally try to hide things. A job, a career, success, money, all of those gone. So I hope in some small way, that my wounds are somehow healing wounds, not only for myself, but for others as well. So that's my story. And I wanna leave this with us this morning and challenge us as a body. This is not your exact story, but many of us have a common thread in these stories. Let's live our story as a church, as a body, as, a, as the called out community together. Let's embrace our journey. Let's know who we are, like who we are, and live that authentic journey. But we have a beautiful story in this church, don't we? A gospel that really, really, really is good news. A gospel that leaves none behind in religious shame a gospel of radical hospitality and inclusion, a good news of our inherent belovedness and union with the divine. And I'm super excited what's going to happen here through us, and between us, and with us. And let's live that story together. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Y'all are awesome.